Atlantic City, New Jersey, Santa Cruz, California, and their world-famous boardwalks have nothing over Enron and the boardwalk and the bridge access road. Most of, you have, most of you have seen that by now. It too is going to become world famous. If they don't soon dig their trench, that thing's going to sink into the mud. But it's been very, how many of you have been fascinated watching what's going on? How many of you have had fender benders, or, or almost? <clears throat> well, I'm going to smoke Chris Colelli out today. He told me about three weeks ago his schedule had changed and he wouldn't be here today. So he asked me if I would switch with him and preach today. And I know the reason he did because when I can't honestly answer fantastic, it's one of those texts, you know, that let the other guy preach it. No, I think his schedule really did change, but then he just told me he's here today. It changed again. And he wants to do another swap out. So I don't know which to believe, whether he's dodging these difficult texts or if he truly is getting his schedule changed. Have you ever had one of those days when you're just really, really down, really down, and you bump into somebody that's had about two hours too much time at Kaladi Brothers, had two triple whatevers, and every word out of their mouth is fantastic, great, super, and you just want to go gag? You relate to that? Man, I've had that happen to me, and I've probably been guilty of doing that to somebody at one time or another. But life lived honestly isn't always fantastic. And the text this morning is about those times when you can't say honestly fantastic. And that text is the second half of chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, beginning at verse 16. I want to just read a few verses later on in the text Uh, beginning at verse 23, where he was forced to uh, give his resume. And in his resume, he says, in labors more often, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, and he should have added, drug out of the city, left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble, and I do not, and I do not burn with indignation? Heavenly Father, 
There are very few of us, if any, who have been called to endure that kind of abuse. There are those times in our lives where we truly can't answer fantastic. But there are certainly few in comparison to what we just read of the Apostle Paul. How you, Father, choose to use this text this morning in our individual lives, I do not know. But I pray that sovereignly the Holy Spirit will make application where it is needed and that we would be, Father, open to hear what you would say to us this morning from your word. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Kind of as an introductory statement, I just want to say that there is a distinction, a very big difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based upon circumstances. It's circumstantial. Happiness comes, happiness goes. As a very young pastor, I thought my duty was to see that everybody was happy. I had uh, misunderstood much of what I heard growing up as as a child in church, and it lingered into my early years. God's purpose for our lives is not to make us happy is to conform us to the image of Christ. And the more we experience that, the more we experience joy. Joy is internal in spite of circumstances. The joy is what motivated Paul and Silas after having been brutally whipped, their backs laid bare, chained to the wall in prison, singing hymns. It wasn't because they were happy. They knew the joy of the privilege of suffering persecution for Jesus' sake. More times than not, we somehow believe that the only socially acceptable response to how are you is just fine. What's wrong with, I've been better, or life's really been a challenge lately. You answer like that when you're answering honestly, and that's the way it is. You find out real quick if people are really wanting to know (laughs) or just trying to be polite. Betty Cashman was an acquaintance uh, many years ago, experienced some very rough things in her life, and she wrote a little pamphlet, and I want to read just one paragraph. I've had my share of affliction in the early 1960s. My older sister was brutally murdered by her husband. In the 1970s, my father, a brilliant pastor and editor, was reduced to almost vegetable status by the ravages of Parkinson's disease. And in the 1980s, my own body has been attacked by ovarian cancer not once, but three times. The resulting surgeries, chemotherapy, and radiation treatments laid me aside from my accustomed, busy lifestyle. Why do I share these difficult situations? just to emphasize the truth that God does not always make our lives perfect. Are you okay with that? God doesn't always make our lives perfect. I wonder what uh, Scott and Lisa Jackson and Ricky 
would say right now. Two and a half years enduring a pain that no doctor is able to find out the cause. In the Kenai Grace Brethren Church, there's a lady named Bevest, who about two years ago became confined to a wheelchair, probably for the rest of her life, with a disease that is incurable. Another lady, about 50 years old, stricken with uh, cystic fibrosis or something like one of those diseases, confined to a wheelchair, chair, incapable of communicating verbally. The only way I can communicate with her is by email, where she pecks one letter at a time using a pencil in her mouth. Yet, trapped in that body is a beautiful person who loves the Lord and is such a thrill and encouragement to be around. And then in the Kenai Church, within a period of a year, a small church, about a third the size of this church, actually this morning about half the size, four murders and three suicides with people either in the church or associated closely to the church. Just this last week, the bodies of the young lady and her two little girls were found, murdered by an evil man who then committed suicide. That young lady was baptized in the Kenai Church about four years ago. She lived with one of the families in our church for several years. She was like their daughter. Friday, in the post office in Kenai, the mother of the lady in our church who became like a mother to this girl and my wife were hugging as she wept. It was so neat. Everybody in the post office honored and respected it. It became dead silent. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. In the 45 years that I have been in a pastoral role, I have never known it to be any different. There's a lot of evil in this world. And there's a lot of hard things in this world. And none of us are exempt. God does not make our lives perfect. And yet, as a boy... I remember singing those Sunday school songs. I'm so happy. Heavenly sunshine. Now, those songs go on, and they're okay theologically, but that's not the message I got. I got the message that once I gave my life to Christ, life would just be wonderful from then on. And I'm here to tell you, it's not. As we turn to our text, I suspect that some of you are thinking, I could finish this sermon for you, preacher. <clears throat> some of you are thinking, well, I've really been there. <clears throat> some of you are there right now. 2 Corinthians 11 is just one of many texts that address this reality of life. In this particular text, Paul is confronting the 
arrogant condescensions of false teachers who had challenged his authority, his authenticity, even his appearance, that they might discredit his message and win people away from Christ to their false teaching. And so he was forced into this matter of parading his credentials. Probably helps to turn this thing on. When you go back to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians 11, I mean the first verse of chapter 11, Paul began this chapter with, Oh, that you would bear with me a little, with me in a little folly. He was going to present his credentials in contrast to what the false teachers had been done, doing. And he says, You know, this is an exercise in folly. He calls it bragging. But because of these false teachers, he was forced to doing this. And he makes three observations. First, Parading credentials is foolishness. Verse 16, I say again, let no one think me a fool, if otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly, in this confidence of boasting. About... uh, 30, 35 years ago, I heard about this young seminary graduate back in Winona Lake, Indiana, named Scott Frankino. I called him on the phone because we needed a, a, children, or a, a youth pastor in Anchorage. And, and you know what? I, I hadn't talked to him but a minute, and he just blew me off. Alaska! Now, I'm just saying this because he didn't really blow me off. But, but uh, when you hear Alaska, he, not interested. He told me later, uh, recently, that later another guy from Alaska called him, a guy named Dan Thornton, you might have heard of him, uh, to see if he would come up and be a youth pastor. And uh, Scott tells me that, that my call was maybe used by the Lord to get him, well, man, two calls from Alaska, that doesn't happen very often, and the rest is history. I have made, I don't know, a couple dozen calls like that to prospective ministry staff personnel through the years. And when I do, this didn't happen with Scott, but when I do make those calls, I always become suspicious when the first thing a prospective staff person presents are his formal education degrees and the school that where he earned them. It always makes me suspicious. I want to see your scars. I don't want to hear about what school you went to. Are you an authentic person? Are you real? Have you ever needed to be truly forgiven? Do you know what it is to fail? Show me your scars. I don't want to hear about what school you went to. Needless to say, Paul wasn't impressed with the pedigree and the theological degrees of these false teachers. Parading credentials is foolishness, Paul says, and so is trusting in credentials. It's folly. 
Verse 18. Seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face, you put up with it. My goodness, people, what's wrong with you? They had really been sucked in by these false teachers. And this was his concern. Their danger of being sucked into this false teaching was his motivation for parading his credentials. Something else that uh, these teachers were was arrogant to the bone, as it's reflected there in that last verse. Arrogance always leads to error. There is never a place for arrogance in Christian ministry. And Jonathan Edwards once wrote, The best protection one can have against the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. I say amen to that. And there's a, a third observation, and I think this one is really telling. Promoting one's credentials is a facade. It's just a smokescreen, a cover-up, or whatever. Paul makes his point by asking four rhetorical questions. Are they Hebrews? Are they part of the chosen people? Are they on the inside track? I mean, in their arrogance, they were saying, hey, look at us, we're Hebrews. Paul says, so am I. Are they Israelites? Well, so am I. In fact, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the only tribe that stayed loyal to the Davidic kingdom in the Old Testament. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. These are the things that they were parading as their credentials, and and they said that they were ministers of Christ. But Paul says in verse 23, but I am more. And then he gives his portfolio of credentials. Now these first seven verses serve basically as Paul's perspective on the foolishness of parading credentials. It's as if Paul is saying, okay, all of this is a bunch of foolish nonsense, and I'd hoped you guys were mature enough to see through these yahoos. But obviously you're not. So here is what one make what makes one qualified to serve, to be heard, to teach, to whatever. Paul's credential portfolio are contained in the verses that follow. The false teacher said, look at our background. Look at the people we hang out with. Look at the prestigious schools we attend. Look at our pedigree. We're Hebrews. Whatever. None of that with Paul. When he did have his turn in the spotlight, He was forced to place himself there. And when he did, he did it as a servant. And I want you to to really grab hold of this. As we go down through these verses very, very briefly, Paul does not list one achievement. Not one. 
Last time you filled out your resume looking for a job, I bet it's all filled with achievements. Mine too. Doesn't speak of servanthood. And of course it probably shouldn't in many cases. Paul lists the downside of fantastic in his resume. He shows them his scars, so to speak. And what he describes as his credentials is faithful, obedient servanthood. And here's the introductory paragraph to his resume. I speak as a fool, verse 23. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. Yep. Seven times Paul was placed in prison because of his faith. Would you put in the introductory paragraph of your resume, I'm an ex-con, right up front. Paul did. Yeah, i got to say this. Not to, not to put attention to me, but to, to show how that when people are honest, people respect that. When I was when I was, was told that I was going to be candidating to become the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Newburgh, Oregon, I was told, just real bluntly, Billy Graham couldn't get a unanimous call to that church. They were notorious for being rather ungrateful to preachers. Well, <clears throat> we were the first church pastor and wife to ever receive a unanimous call to that church. You know why? Not because I'm good looking. You all know that. That's obvious. Not because I'm talented. Not because I'm eloquent or any of that stuff. Or my pedigree or degrees. Sherry and I had just spent three years out of the ministry after having become totally Uh, emotionally bankrupt. I perhaps had a nervous breakdown. I don't know. I was extremely depressed, clinically depressed. And it took three years for us to be able to look down on bottom. We were just absolutely, totally up front about that and anything that we could think of as to why they shouldn't call us to be their pastor. Because of the shock of the honesty and the authenticity that we, we expressed, they were unanimous in calling us. What do you think would have happened if I tried to hide that or been less than, less than candid? <clears throat> okay, without, verse 24 and 5, from the Jews, five times I received 39 stripes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Try to put yourself in his moccasins. It's tough. But think as you do as we read through this. He endured persecutions. He endured perils. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. Paul was shipwrecked a fourth time on his way to Rome in Acts chapter 27. And I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to be a day and a half in the the deep. 
I've been commercial fishing out in a skiff, waiting for whatever in the middle of the night and you have no orientation. It's pretty spooky. One time I had a sea lion, and this was in the middle of the day. I was just floating out there in the inlet, and right up maybe six feet from me, maybe six, maybe eight feet, in a two-man rubber raft, a ton, 2,000-pound sea lion pops up out of the water and direct eye contact. Oh. I didn't need Kaladi Brothers, man. My heart was going... About three seconds later, he dropped. But I can just imagine the fears that would be a day and a night in the deep. I was going to read, our time's getting away from us, I was going to read in Hebrews 11 the litany of men and women who gave their lives for the sake of Christ as martyrs. Every one of them were willing to die for their faith. Have you ever thought about that? Are you willing, would you be willing to die for your faith if the issue was deny Christ or off with your head? And somebody that had the power to do it, maybe the government, the military, or whoever, Al-Qaeda, ISIS. I listened to the testimony of a little girl, about 12 years old, I think she was a Coptic Christian in Egypt. I'm not sure. And I've always been kind of suspicious of those that uh, are in the liturgical churches and very formal and, and whatnot. Her parents were martyred. And her testimony was so clear, there's no way that she would deny her dear Jesus. It was a precious thing. She was ready to die. And I really believe until we're ready to die, willing to die, we're not able to live for Christ. I hope you'll think about that. Really process that this week. These people in Hebrews 11 were not criminals. They were godly servants of Christ. By Nero's day, their bodies were used as torches, dipped in oil, hung on poles, and set on fire to light the Colosseum. Life isn't always fantastic. Persecutions, perils, pains and weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. I believe that there is no greater virtue than to know that what you are doing is God-ordained and sticking to it regardless of the cost to yourself. And that includes raising a two-year-old and getting out of bed and getting to work on time and a lot more. And if this wasn't enough, in verse 28, he speaks of the pressures. Besides the other things that come upon me daily, my concern for all the churches... Godly pastors and elders know what this is like. It is much like the concern you have as a parent that never leaves you, even when your child is 30 or 40 or 50. Parenthood is a life sentence. So is becoming a Christian. 
Up to here, Paul has listed the stuff of life without. What is really revealing and why we, we refer to this as the biography of a bleeding heart is the authenticity of the Apostle Paul that comes through as he shares intimate things within. Weakness. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? The meaning here isn't obvious on the surface, so I'm going to paraphrase it like this. When you've been there, you're not quick to condemn. When you've been weak, you're not quick to consign others to the doghouse. In short, you aren't quick to look over the top of your nose and say, when are you going to snap out of it? When you've been there, you understand. And that's the way it is with true servants of Christ. Show me a person who doesn't understand and who is quick to judge, and I'll show you someone who has never experienced deep forgiveness and has perhaps been overly protected. An educator I heard said, the number one problem we face in public schools is that most of the children have parents who don't want their children to experience any pain. Why not? We are a pain-protecting society. I don't want my children to have to go through this. Why not? A hymn we sing, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come, and there will be more. How is character built? It's built experientially as through patience and endurance. We do the right thing. God builds character and conforms us to the image of His Son. I think the conclusion of this chapter could only have been written by a truly great man. He speaks of his helplessness. Verse 30. If I must boast... I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor, under Artus the king, was guarding the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from their hands. This is the great Apostle Paul. A bright light appears to him on the road to Damascus, and he is gloriously saved in a moment. He goes into Damascus. No cymbals, no brass bands, no drums, no parades, no flags. In fact, they're out to grab him and put him in jail and probably kill him. And he has to be let down through a window in the wall to escape. In a basket. He was that one of the head dudes on his way to, to Damascus. And then this. Talk about demeaning, embarrassing, but only if you're trying to protect your ego. You know, we like prestigious academic institutions. We like to drive status symbol cars, have a house that's a little better than the one next door, a list of accomplishments along with a bit of casual name-dropping, 
And because we do this, we think it's true. But it's a lie. What really stands out for me in this text, first is he, he doesn't deny the difficulty. He's real, he's honest, he tells it like it is, he's authentic. And then he doesn't market his misery. Come Friday night and hear the man who spent a day and a night in the deep. And for an extra 20 bucks after the service, he'll show you his scars. He just lived it. And this brief resume of his life had to be forced out of him. Where do we see authentic people like that? Let me tell you, I've seen a lot of them through the years. Faithfully, quietly, lovingly, serving the Lord behind the scenes without any recognition. There's a few people like that right here in this church. But I think most significantly, he doesn't explain why. At the end of verse 33, there's a period. There is no verse 34 which begins, there are three reasons we suffer. Here are five steps, four laws, six principles. Must, what, must, why must we always need to know why? Why can't suffering sometimes just be suffering? Why must it be expected of others to give us a reason why? Suffering in and of itself is a message. The best analytical minds who have ever pondered this question write in the final chapter, suffering is sometimes a mystery. We just have no way of always knowing why. The Bible, and particularly Jesus, spoke more about the rainy days than the sunny days. A few months back, I believe it was in the first part of 2 Corinthians, we had a couple sermons very similar like this, and this sheet was passed out. On it are reasons for suffering in the scriptures. There are 18 listed. There are many reasons that we can point to as to why suffering. But I want to suggest a 19th reason. It's a mystery. Nobody knows. Sometimes we will never know this side of glory. I have mentioned previously that uh, I, dro I graduated in the top 30 of my high school class. There were 30 in my high school class. <laughs> and uh, we have class reunions every five years. And about 20 years ago, I went to the, maybe the 25th or whatever, 30th uh, class reunion. It was so fascinating to me that half of the kids that were there, about 15, 16, were Christians. Truly following the Lord, real, the real deal, Christians. There were only two of us in, in the graduating class, and now there's 10 or 12. Linda Karsten, Mike Johan, John Morford, Trudy Turner, Judy Lumley, Marianne Pace, and others. In almost every case, they came to faith in Christ later 
as adults. They had been, had contact with the truth. But they didn't come to faith in Christ till as they were later as adults. And in almost every instance, it was because of a crisis in their life. And because of that crisis, they turned to the right place for help. They turned to the Lord. That is one of the reasons for suffering. What this does to us individually, it awakens us to the truth of who we are. Suffering announces, I'm a person with great weakness. Suffering announces that I am a person greatly experienced in sinfulness. Suffering announces that I am helpless and in need of others to let me out the window in a basket. I need others, and so do you. There is no one more anemic and failure-prone than someone who feels he is unneeding of others. Let me ask you to bow your heads, please. This is a sermon that is a whole lot easier to preach than to live, granted. I can't explain why life hasn't always been fantastic for you. I just know that you have more friends on this side than on the other. But behind all the answers like great and fantastic and wonderful, there's an underside, sackcloth and ashes, There is pain that folks are going through that is readying them for eternity. There is character being developed. Don't stop it. Don't don't let anyone manipulate it. A friend will help, maybe even a professional, but be so very careful with that time of suffering. It can well be God's special package that touches you where nothing else on earth can. It will certainly teach you like success never could. It might break you. It might scar you. It will probably wound you. But you need it. I need it. We need it. Father, without Christ, we're pretty miserable failures. And without Christ, it's so, so very easy, even with Christ, to medicate our pain rather than walk into it. Father, if I read this scripture right, our weakness is not an enemy, but a friend of grace. Help us not to avoid the difficult the painful. Father, adjust our thinking so that we will face the realities of life rather than run from them. We all know the only way through pain, honestly, facing up to it, is the answer. And I thank you, Father, that through it all, we are never alone. 
Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And Father, glory is coming. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to even be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And in the words of the Apostle John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.